Hi, I'm Dr. Rebecca May, and this is Arcana Advances. Follow along as we explore all renal research happenings at Arcana Laboratories. Hello, welcome to Arcana Advances, where we discuss exciting new research on renal pathology performed by our own physicians. I'm Dr. Rebecca May. And today we have Dr. Tiffany Kaza, who will be discussing her recent review article in Frontiers in Immunology titled, How Times Have Changed, A Cornucopia of Antigens for Membranous Nephropathy. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Kaza. I love the title, too. First, so that we're all on the same page, what is membranous nephropathy? So membranous nephropathy is an important autoimmune disease causing nephrotic syndrome. It's the second leading cause of nephrotic syndrome in adult patients, actually, second only to diabetic nephropathy. It's characterized by the subepithelial deposition of IgG and complement components in that subepithelial space. And these immune complexes can be planted antigens or potentially be due to uh, circulating immune complexes, although further data is uh, required to determine that association. Um, it affects adults much more than children. Um, in children, the leading cause of nephrotic syndrome is minimal change disease, and membranous is much less common. And when you talk about planted antigens, that means uh, antigens that are native to the glomerulus. Yes, in, in general, this would be primary podocyte antigens, and so antibodies directed against any podocyte protein. Um, but there are several new antigens that um, are not expressed within podocytes as well. So can you discuss the discovery of the first membranous antigen? Sure. So the first uh, membranous antigen was uh, described by Dr. Larry Back at Boston Medical Center. And this was a little more than a decade ago, back in 2009. It was identified through reacting patient serum of patients with membranous nephropathy against human glomerular extract. And the immunoprecipitation resulted in a band, which by mass spectrometry was identified to be the phospholipase A2 receptor. Um, following that discovery, the same technique was used for discovery of thrombospondin type 1 domain containing 7A, or THSD7A, in 2014. And within the last three years, we just exploded with many new antigens described. And how did the detection of antigens change in the more recent history in the past few years? So serum immunoprecipitation with human glomerular extract is uh, still a very uh, viable and important method for antigen identification. Um, but more recently, tissue-based techniques were done from residual kidney biopsies, um, one being laser capture microdissection, through which you take thick sections of paraffin-embedded tissue, um, you cut out glomeruli with a laser and then do triptych digestion and mass spectrometry analysis um, from uh, the isolated glomeruli to really enrich for those proteins. Another method is from the frozen tissue to elute the immune complexes and then interrogate those. And you can use protein G, which binds IgG, um, to pull those out from tissue. And then you follow that with mass spec to try to define the actual protein involved. Oh, yeah. Both, yeah, both uh, methods would use mass spectrometry. And then there's another method um, that has been less commonly used uh, for which you take a peptide array 
and use serum to react against um, which peptides will correspond to a, a protein that could be a uh, potential antigen. And this was used recently as well as other techniques for a new antigen, uh, serum protease HTRA1. So I, I know we've just been seeing so many new antigens come out in the last few years, and I know you're behind a lot of that work as well. Um, you've had a lot of amazing papers come out with new antigens. Um, so what we're going to do is kind of review, I mean, your paper's review article, um, and we're going to talk about um, a lot of these different antigens and some of the characteristics. So let's first discuss what primary versus secondary membranous means. So I'm, I'm hoping and um, I think it's kind of already starting to get established that the distinction between primary and secondary membranous is going to go away, and that's because we have a whole lot of new antigens, and some of them have secondary associations. But previously, primary membranous was thought to be due to circulating antibodies against the podocyte antigens PLA2R or THSD7A. And when patients were negative for both antigens on a kidney biopsy, they would look for what could potentially be causing membranous and what are some secondary associations. These include autoimmune diseases such as lupus, um, malignancy, infections like hepatitis uh, B, schistosomiasis and syphilis, um, sarcoidosis, and medications. However, some of the new antigens um, are linked to some of those, which kind of blurs the distinction. So we will we will discuss this sort of like primary antigens expressed within the podocytes, but I do, I know my thinking has changed a lot since I first learned about the concept of membranous in thinking about it more like an antigen-based system. So first, uh, let's talk about some of the antigens expressed within podocytes, uh, starting with PLA2R. PLA2R, or phospholipase A2 receptor, is the target antigen for the majority of cases of membranous. It affects about 70% of patients um, have PLA2R positive membranous. Um, the frequency on kidney biopsy is actually decreasing for PLA2R positive membranous, and this is entirely because antibodies against PLA2R are used for not only non-invasive monitoring, but for primary diagnosis. PLA2R kind of served as a proof of concept um, that we can identify antibodies in serum, and they could be very useful to monitor disease activity, potentially for primary diagnosis, which is in the current KDAGO guidelines published in 2021. So basically, patients are sometimes skipping that renal biopsy because they have a positive PLA2R result? Yeah, that's correct. And that's not true yet for some of the other antigens, but there is um, hope that that will be. So PLA2R has a dominant antigen, um, which is a cysteine-rich domain. But there has been found that later in disease or in patients that have a poor prognosis, you can develop epitope spreading for PLA2R. This assay is mainly used uh, for research studies. I don't think there is any commercial assay yet for epitope spreading, but um, it's quite interesting. And then let's move on to THSD7A, the second antigen discovered. Sure. So THSD7A is also expressed in podocytes. Makes up about 3% of total membranous biopsies. And um, similar to PLA2R, 
Um, we can detect autoantibodies in serum. They correlate with disease activity. However, there is insufficient data um, that there is uh, sufficient sensitivity and specificity for this to be used as primary diagnosis. DHSD7A is seen in conjunction with PLA2R positive membranous, where you have dual positivity about 1% to 2% of the time. So are there commercially available uh, serum tests for THSD7A? Yeah, so there are for both PLA2R and THSD7A. They're from your immune, and PLA2R is actually FDA cleared. For PLA2R, we have both an indirect immunofluorescence assay and ELISA, when in THSD7A, there's an indirect immunofluorescent assay available. So let's go on to another uh, primary antigen, uh, HTRA1. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, of course. Um, so HTRA1 was um, described by uh, one of our collaborators, uh, Dr. Laith Elbaradi, and also in conjunction with Dr. Larry Beck. Um, so it's one of my favorite antigens, just <laughs> <laughs> FYI. But it's a serine protease that is expressed in podocytes, um, is involved in homeostasis of the extracellular matrix, makes up uh, probably only about 2% of total membranous cases. It's a little more than 5% of PLA2R negative cases. And we don't know secondary associations with HTRA1, but it affects really old individuals. So it's, it's seen in elderly patients, I think. How old? I think the mean age was 68 years. Mm, okay. Compared to PLA2R is about 58 years. Mm. Um, antibodies and serum were found to correlate with disease activity. And that was both with immunoprecipitation, with human glomerular extract, as well as reactivity against HTRA1. And the authors did very extensive validation of this assay. So they've uh, identified it through serum precipitation with human glomerular extract, through peptide arrays, through laser capture microdissection, as well as protein G immunoprecipitation. Um, so they have quite a bit of data for its discovery. And then let's move on to the uh, last antigen that we'll discuss that's expressed in podocytes, semaphorin uh, 3B. Sure. So semaphorin-3b was described by Dr. Sethi's group at the Mayo Clinic. Um, it's an antigen that's very rare, less than 1% of total membranous, but it's enriched in the pediatric population, making up about 10% of pediatric membranous cases. And overall, there's still a knowledge gap of pediatric membranous, about 45% are PLA2R positive, um, and a lot were unknown, but now we know 10% uh, have reactivity against semaphorin-3b. Uh, so semaphorin-3b is actually a neural protein that's expressed in development. Other newly identified membranous antigens are also neural proteins, which are kind of interesting because neurons have similar characteristics as podocytes. You know, they have you know extensions um, like podocyte full processes <laughs> and some of the same uh, machinery to do that. Semaphorin-3b, unlike PLA2R, THSD7A, and HTRA1, expresses other immune reactants such as IgG, like IgA and C1Q. There also can be extra glomerular staining with some tubular-based membrane deposits. Antibodies are identified in serum, and interestingly, only in reducing conditions. Comparing non-reducing and reducing conditions, um, so in non-reducing conditions, you have, um, run by Western blot, you have a native 
conformation of the protein. When in reducing condition, you break the disulfide bonds to kind of try to linearize the protein. Um, so that might give us an idea of potentially about the epitope for SEMA3B. And when you say it's enriched in peds, what's the average age that you're seeing that in? Are we talking very young children or past the toddler stage? There were um, occasional patients that were actually less than two years of age, which is incredibly rare for membranous to affect that population. I think the mean age was six or seven. So let's uh, move on to discuss primary antigens that are not expressed in podocytes, starting with NEL1. What can you tell us about NEL1? Uh, so NEL1 is also a neural protein, so neural epidermal growth factor like 1. Um, it is a protein that's not expressed in the glomerulus, but might be actually the second most common membranous antigen. It makes up about 16% of PLA2R negative cases. And if you look at you know the total all comers of membranous, that's about 4% of total. Uh, membranous biopsies. Um, there are some secondary disease associations with NUL1. So about a third of patients with NUL1 membranous have malignancy. Um, there is a single case report of graft-versus-host disease related to NUL1 positive membranous nephropathy, and recently it's been identified to be associated with lipoic acid use. Um, there are multiple cohorts described now for NEL1 membranous. And in a Chinese cohort, uh, it was had an even increased frequency, um, which I found pretty interesting. We can actually pick out NEL1 cases fairly frequently on a biopsy because they have the segmental IgG staining along the glomerular capillary loops. Or it may be not segmental, but incomplete global where you get a few capillary loops that are spared. And those are some good cases to check for NL1. Yeah, so what you're alluding to basically is that with PLA2R, some of these other membranous antigens, you get just widespread, super bright staining um, on immunofluorescence, right? But with um, some of these other antigens like NL1, it's very like you said, segmental, where you can pick out some loops that have no deposits whatsoever. And so that should kind of trigger you to think about other, other antigens. So now let's talk about protocadherin-7. This antigen was also described by Dr. Sethi's group at the Mayo Clinic. And similar to NL1 and SEMA4 and 3B, it's expressed in the nervous system. This is also expressed in older adults, um, we don't really know clinical associations. I think the cohort had 11 patients, um, mm. but three of them had malignancy and three had autoimmune disease, so there may be a signal there. On biopsy, about half of them had little to no C3 staining, and in, normally in membranous nephropathy, you get um, very bright capillary loop C3 staining as well as IgG and in protocadherin-7. And then there's a new antigen that's also a protocadherin uh, that's called FAT1, uh, brand new, uh, just came out in Jason like a couple of days ago, <laughs> <laughs> and, and described by the same group, but that also has minimal C3 uh, staining on a kidney biopsy. So I don't, I don't think I had this in this review because it's so new, but FAT1 has an association uh, with stem cell transplant. So it's been shown that de novo membranous can be seen in patients post-stem cell transplant or in the setting of graft-versus-host disease. 
And FAT1 is the target antigen there. Oh, wow. So autoantigens in membranous lupus nephritis, which is the really the most common secondary etiology of membranous um, and is seen more in younger and minority females, what about a biopsy? What findings sort of clue you into this could possibly be autoimmune-related or related to lupus? Clinical history is really important here. (laughs) If they have a positive ANA, you definitely need to keep your radar up. But expressing other immune reactants, so if you have immunofluorescence staining for IgA or C1Q, that that can uh, push you to think about uh, an autoimmune type of membranous. Like a full full house sort of pattern? Yeah. um, Sometimes it's not full house, but... Absolutely. If you have full house staining, think about uh, membranous lupus nephritis. Um, Extra glomerular staining is also something to look out for. So if there's tubular basement membrane deposits or vascular deposits, having a tissue ANA where you have this kind of speckled staining present um, within nuclei, tubular epithelial cells, and sometimes in podocytes too, and if you have depo- immune deposits that are not just subepithelial or intramembranous, but they just kind of spread across the glomerulus, you get mesangial um, deposits or subendothelial deposits. Also think about autoimmune disease there. So I, I know that the majority of the antigens are still unknown that are associated um, with lupus and autoimmune disease, but you highlight three of them in the paper, um, starting with exitocin 1 and 2. And overall, with PLE2 being like 70% of primary membranous, okay, so-called primary membranous, <laughs> um, in membranous lupus nephritis, uh, less than 5% of cases are PLE2 positive. So exostocin 1 and 2, as you mentioned, is the most common known antigen involved in membranous lupus nephritis makes up about a quarter of cases overall of patients with membranous lupus nephritis. But if you have exostocin positivity, there's like an 80% risk that you have autoimmune disease. Mm. Uh, so it's quite associated with autoimmunity. So if you have a patient with EXT1 or 2 positivity, you should really be looking for an autoimmune disease if they don't already have a known diagnosis. Yeah, absolutely. So 70% of these patients have a positive ANA. And it's important to look for because these patients have a good outcome. You look at 10 years in patients with either membranous lupus nephritis or even those that have a proliferative lupus component, like focal or diffuse lupus nephritis, um, they don't go on to develop relapses or end-stage kidney disease. There's a few reports of uh, relapse disease, and even those have uh, favorable outcomes. Oh, yeah. That's really good for the patient to know. It must be really comforting, too, to know that they likely won't go to end stage. So let's go on to talk about NCAM1. Neural cell adhesion molecule 1, or NCAM1, was found by our group. And this was from protein G immunoprecipitation. So we eluded antibodies um, from kidney biopsy tissue to find NCAM1 and also confirmed it by laser capture microdissection. It's also a neural protein, uh, similar now to SEMA3B, NEL1, and the protocoherins. Um, so we're seeing more and more pro- proteins expressed in the nervous system that 
are targeted uh, membranous antigens. Uh, NKM1 makes up 7% of overall cases of membranous lupus nephritis. And interestingly, patients that have lupus nephritis um, had an increased risk of neuropsychiatric manifestations, so uh, seizures or psychosis or cerebritis. There were 40% overall in our cohort when, if you look at total lupus patients, only about 9% have neuropsychiatric disease. Our cohort only included 20 patients, so we need more data, but I think there's a signal there. And what about TGFBR3? So TGFBR3 is expressed in podocytes. It makes up about 5% of cases of membranous lupus nephritis and very enriched in, in lupus. 82% had lupus. We don't know a lot about it otherwise. Um, similar to exostosin and NKM1-associated um, membranous, they express other immune reactants. Um, they can have mesangial deposits, but we still have more to learn. Um, for TGFBR3, we couldn't find antibodies in serum. We really tried, looked against recombinant protein, tried indirect immunofluorescence assays, tried immunoprecipitation with human glomerular extract with our collaborators, and have not had luck here. So we, we don't really know yet if this is a target antigen versus a biomarker of disease. More data is required. So looking across membranous lupus nephritis, so we have these three antigens that you discussed, and how many are still unknown out of that if you subgroup that membranous lupus nephritis, where, where we don't know the antigen? About 70% are still unknown. Um, there's a huge knowledge gap here. We still have lots to learn on membranous lupus nephritis. And interestingly, for all three of these new antigens, they can have proliferative lupus too. So the same antigen can be implicated in a focal or diffuse lupus nephritis. Hmm. But do you ever stain a focal or diffuse lupus nephritis for these antigen? Is for these antigens? Is there any um, talk about doing that in the future? Uh, so here at Arcana, we have EXT1 and EXT2 as well as NCAM1 uh, validated for staining membranous cases. Uh, I would suggest EXT1 or EXT2 staining um, be performed on focal or diffuse lupus nephritis as well, just because it does have a favorable outcome and prognostic potential. Hmm. It's very interesting. And then what other autoimmune diseases have you seen that are associated with membranous? So many, actually. Um, Anca-associated disease is associated with membranous because you can have myeloperoxidase actually present in the subepithelial deposits. Rheumatoid arthritis and mixed connective tissue disease occasionally have uh, a membranous pattern. Sjogren's syndrome is another. Uh, sarcoidosis, which I don't know that that's an autoimmune disease, but it's another potential association with um, membranous. But by and large, the most common is membranous lupus nephritis. So medications can also induce membranous nephropathy, correct? Yeah. The most common is NSAIDs, um, which unfortunately are over-the-counter, might not be in the patient's medication list, and are just so commonly used. Um, so they're a major player. Is there a uh, dose effect? Not that I know of, mm. but don't don't quote me there. <laughs> um a recent association is lipoic acid, which is a supplement used to treat neuropathy. 
Gold salts, which were used for rheumatologic conditions, were implicated in membranous, uh, penicillamine, and um, some other drugs. Um, metal poisoning is also associated with membranous, such as um, mercury toxicity. And uh, we talked a little bit about infectious trigger triggers of membranous. Can you talk a little bit about some infections that can trigger membranous and also the mechanism behind that? Sure. So in most of these cases, we don't know the mechanism. We don't know if the organism is actually in the immune deposits or if there's molecular mimicry with a certain protein inducing the membranous nephropathy. Um, But we do know for hepatitis B. So hepatitis B virus, the E antigen, is present in subepithelial deposits. With HIV infection, it can be in the spectrum of HIVIC or HIV associated immune complex disease of the kidney. Overseas, not seen much in the United States at all, but schistomyosis has been associated with membranous nephropathy. Syphilis, and this is, although I guess any age a patient can develop syphilis, it's an important um, thing to look for for young patients that have a negative ANA but have these autoimmune-like features of membranous. And there's others that are rarely implicated as well. And we also talked about malignancy and NEL1, but even outside of um, NEL1, can you talk about the risk of malignancy with membranous? Unfortunately, patients with membranous nephropathy overall have a three to four uh, fold increased risk in cancer when you compare it to the age matched general population. And of patients with membranous, 10% actually have malignancy. And they may have known malignancy at the time of diagnosis, or it might be identified a year or two after uh, they were diagnosed with membranous. So it's really important to screen patients, particularly who are PLA2 or negative for an underlying malignancy. When a membranous is malignancy-associated, the proteinuria will correlate with the underlying tumor. And so it will increase with tumor growth particularly with metastasis, it will respond to chemotherapy or radiation therapy or excision where proteinuria will fall. And relapse of the underlying malignancy can cause uh, relapse of proteinuria. Um, So there has to be a link between the proteinuria and underlying malignancy to consider a case malignancy-associated. And more recently, we did a study of patients who had malignancy and membranous that were truly concordant with proteinuria malignancy versus those that were true true unrelated. As old patients are more likely to get cancer anyway. But if the cancer was much remote compared to the diagnosis of membranous or excised or known to be in remission, they were likely true true unrelated. And we saw that those who um, were not malignancy-associated had the same antigenic distribution as uh, what we would expect in all comers. Um, for true malignancy-associated membranous, similar to Peds membranous and membranous lupus nephritis, we really have a knowledge gap here, the antigens implicated, aside from an increase in null one. So do um, physicians ever use proteinuria in these patients that do have the strong association as a screening tool for relapse of their cancer? You know, I, I don't know the answer to that, but uh, given that there is an association, I, I think so. Another important thing is when we develop serologic tests, it's there could be a potential or, okay, when serologic tests will, you know, become 
you know, available potentially antibodies um, directed against uh, antigens in malignancy-associated membranous nephropathy um, will have an association with the underlying tumor, and you could potentially monitor the patient's um, underlying membranous as well as malignancy. But we don't currently have proof of concept for that, except for a single case report for THSD7A-associated membranous. And that was published in the New England Journal. It involved a gallbladder carcinoma and was several years back in, in 2016, but provides a potential that this could, you know, could actually be possible. So you in the paper have a really nice staining algorithm for identifying antigens. Can you describe your algorithm for staining? So as you can see from you know the the antigens that we just discussed, right now there are so many that it's almost like alphabet soup. <laughs> but <laughs> I really think a multiplex approach is needed. And whether that be monitoring from serum once serologic tests are available, um, doing a multiplex assay, or I guess more likely it would be mass spectrometries that was used to identify essentially all of these membranous antigens. And But now, since we're just stuck with immunostaining, <laughs> we can look at PLE2R for all comers, because that's going to pick up 70% of membranous cases. If it's PLE2R negative, you can choose antigens to look for um, based on some things on the biopsy and clinical history. So when there's a segmental pattern of IgG staining, you can think of null one. That would be a good reason for to stain for null one. There are some other segmental forms of membranous that have other associations like IgG4 related kidney disease. So if there's a concurrent plasma cell rich infiltrate or interstitial nephritis, staining for IgG4 may be helpful um, to identify that. Antibreshport or antibody disease has a segmental membranous pattern. Um, this will also have breshport or staining and tubular basement membrane deposits, and the subepithelial IgG deposition is really a minor component of that uh, disease process, but that can have a segmental membranous as well. And then ANC-associated membranous uh, with anti-MPO antibodies. Usually there's a crescentical myonephritis with ANC-associated disease, but there doesn't have to be. When there's diffuse and global capillary loop staining for IgG rather than a segmental pattern, um, multiple antigens fit that. Um, so that includes THSD7A and HTRA1, um, semaphorin 3B, protokinherin 1 <laughs> or 7, and uh, most recently a new antigen described to NTNG1 or Netrin G1. That was um, presented at Kidney Week last year, and so we still have things to learn about that, but it seems to be less than 1% of cases overall. Um, if the patient's a child, I would stain for SEMA3B. If they have any autoimmune features that we described before, whether it be mesangial deposits or subendothelial deposits or extra glomerular staining, if they have a positive ANA, look for exostosin. NCAM1 and TGFBR3 aren't actionable at this point, but once serologic assays um, in the future develop, that would be useful as well. And if antibodies can be detected against uh, TGFBR3 to begin with. Um, and so some of these other antigens, um, because we don't have companion diagnostics to do serologic testing, I don't um, know that it's crucial to look for them yet. 
the main players, PLE2R, THSC7A, EXT, and NALWA, and I think are more actionable, and you should um, look for those on a kidney biopsy. But for these rare types of membranous, as we learn more about them, um, it'd be important to look for those as well. But what you're envisioning for the future is moving away from this sort of pick-and-choose approach to something, like you said, multiplex, likely with mass spec or something, where you can really look at each case and tell exactly what what the antigen is, which I think is just really exciting for the future. I agree. And with these rare types of membranous to, you know, learn more about them, you know, identifying cases by mass spec will probably be key because it may be impractical stain for, for all of these minor antigens at, at this point. But also we don't know dual positivity or multiple positivity for membranous antigens yet because if it's paley to our positive we generally stop because only one percent was thsc7a positive but what about all of these other antigens there's a likelihood that you may have dual positivity and that would be intermolecular epitope spreading so we mentioned intramolecular epitope spreading with pla2r but intermolecular epitope spreading to other proteins can also occur Yeah, and we do occasionally um, here see some of those dual positive cases um, when we stain for two things at once. So, yeah, it's really interesting things that you're bringing up here. Uh, Is there anything else that's like the most interesting thing about membranous to you right now? Or is it just this explosion of of new data and new cases? I think an explosion of new antigens is interesting, but we still have a lot to learn. Personally, I have a big interest in malignancy-associated membranous. We did a study with this with a null one, but we don't know the mechanism. Could a tumor create neoepitopes that are recognized by the immune system? Um, there's a single case report in a patient with um, checkpoint inhibitor therapy who developed membranous suggesting, yeah, maybe that's, that's a possibility. You could have potential copy number increases, and that was in that single case report of THSD7A associated membranous had a copy number increase and was expressed by the tumor. And, you know, in the short term, do they get worse? You start to lyse the tumor with chemotherapy or radiation, and do you develop antigenemia, and they actually develop worse nephrotic syndrome before they get better? It takes time for those subethyl deposits to resorb, and you always have a lag from you know, your antigenic trigger and when you actually reduce proteinuria. But understanding the mechanism of that would be pretty interesting to me, as well as there's this huge knowledge gap in peds membranous, in lupus membranous, in membranous with malignancy. And so learning more about those types of membranous, I think, would be really interesting. Um, There's also this work by uh, Dr. Ibrahim Batal's group at Columbia where they're creating this genomic risk score for membranous nephropathy for both primary membranous as well as membranous occurring post-transplant. And I'm interested to see what um, they come up with as well. Wow, there's so many exciting things on the horizon. Well, thank you, Dr. Kaza, for taking us through this interesting topic and for coming on the podcast Follow us on Twitter at Arcana Labs for more exciting kidney news and research. You can also follow me on Twitter at Rebecca May underscore RP. Dr. Kaza, where can people find you on Twitter? I can find me at Tiff underscore Kaza. And thank you, Dr. May, for having me today. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening. This podcast and more can be found in the iTunes store. For more information and educational programming like this, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or visit us on the web at arcanalabs.com.